So uh, Sunday um, was kind of the culmination of this, this God kind of speaking to me. And in Cody's sermon on Sunday, we uh, covered the last church in Revelation chapter 3, uh, the church at Laodicea. And um, as he was reading through the passage, this is what kind of culminated in my mind of everything that God had kind of been um, sharing with me. If you were there, you remember he read these words from Jesus written to the church at Laodicea. And, and just to preface this, um, you got to keep in mind that the church at Laodicea, like all the other six churches that Jesus spoke to, was a church made up of believers. That's what made it a church. Uh, it, it was made up of believers, those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, those who had a redeemed relationship with Jesus Christ, those who were sanctified, set apart, have the Holy Spirit living within them, everything we've talked about. Here's what he says to them. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And in the original Greek, it's I'll vomit you up. You make me sick. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then it's interesting, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then he goes on and says, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What, what hit me as Cody was reading through this is that, again, he's writing to a church made up of people like you and I, people who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They're redeemed. They're sanctified, set apart, have the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, living within them. And he says, you're pitiable, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. He's talking to the church. And then he offers them three things. He says, I offer you gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, that you may be... Um, have all the righteousness is really what that's talking about that is theirs. White garments so that you may clothe, clothe yourself and be pure. And then he says, and salve to anoint your eyes. Here's the deal. They already had all of that. They were already righteous in God's eyes because Christ had died for them. They were already pure because of the righteousness of Christ. And they already, they had been taken from blindness to sight. And yet what's Jesus having to say? I'm going to give you, I'm offering you what you already have. So what, what's been percolating in my mind this last week as I've been wrestling with this is, is a word, and I don't think it's a real word, and it's the word unsanctification. We've talked a whole lot about sanctification. And if there's a sanctification, there's got to be an unsanctification. Uh, there's there's got to be living unsanctified, not set apart, um, not holy, not righteous, not as God would have me live. And the reality is, if we're all honest, we live far often than not unsanctified lives. Doesn't mean you're not sanctified because that's positionally, we're all sanctified if we're in Christ. We have been set apart. We belong to him. We're his children. We're adopted. We've been chosen. But I can still live unsanctified. My behavior can reflect an unsanctified nature. What does it look like? Well, think about what it looks like when you and I don't live in the power of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when you live, as Galatians 5 says, in the flesh? 
when you live according to your own strength, your own will, your own mind? What happens when we don't let the word and others and suffering and circumstances change us? And, and we don't have to, right? I, I can reject the wise counsel of others. I can ignore the word of God. I can fight my way through suffering and just hate every minute of it and never learn anything from it. I can do all those things even though I'm sanctified. And when I do that, I'm living as if I'm unsanctified. Now, what, what I want us to understand is that you got to, if, if at no other time, this morning I need you to get outside of yourself and stop thinking about you and start thinking about us. Start thinking about the body of Christ as it applies to this thing called sanctification. And so, so what I want to do is what, what does it look like when you and I individually live unsanctified and what's the impact on the body of Christ? Because I tend to think about, well, it's only me. Who am I hurting? I don't want to read my Bible. I'm the only one that's going to hurt from that. I don't want to pray. I don't want to live righteous today. I don't want to do the things that God wants me to do. And I just think all I'm impacting is me. And we're going to see that nothing could be further from the truth. See, we can look to the Word of God and we can see stories and illustrations from the Word of God that teach us why we should not live unsanctified. You know, we saw this last week in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable. It's, it's all. And at this point, when Paul wrote Timothy, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's all they had. And he's saying these stories, these books, these historical uh, references are all valuable. They teach me. They correct me. They perfect me. Well, we also know from Romans, whatever was written in former days, again, talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is why we're going to study the book of Judges, because it's profitable, it's helpful. There's stories, there's peoples, there's principles, and we can learn from them. So we don't have to go any further than the scriptures to find out what does it look like when you and I choose to live unsanctified lives, and we can look at the New Testament. See, now in our context, we have the entire scriptures, both old and new. We have the completed word of God, and we can go back, especially to the New Testament, since the church started with the book of Acts, we can go and see how did those people live. And the church at Laodicea is an example. We're going to see the church at Corinth is an example. The church at Ephesus was an example. We can look into those situations and we can see what it was like for those people, first century, to live out their sanctification. Because guess what? They were sanctified. They were to live sanctified. But many of Paul's letters are dealing with people who are sanctified, who aren't living sanctified, and he's exposing the results of that in their local context. So we have the history of the church, these people who were redeemed, sanctified, set apart, saved, adopted, just like you and I. And what I, I want us to think about today is you may not go to this church, Christ Chapel. You may go to another church. So you need to think about your church. But if you go to this church, I want you to think about how your life impacts this church. And your decision to either live sanctified or unsanctified impacts this church. And you may think, well, gosh, I'm one of, what, 8,000 people? How do I impact this church? You impact this church. 
because you're part of the body. You're part of the body of Christ. See, these people struggled just like you and I do. These people had temptations to sin. They were led every day by the enemy and by their own flesh to walk away from the things that God was calling them to do, not live sanctified, but live unsanctified. And it had ramifications. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, and we're going to blow our way through it. We're not going to go in depth, but um, 1 Corinthians is written by Paul to the church. Remember, he's writing to believers, just like Jesus was speaking to Laodicean believers. He's writing to believers in a church at Corinth. They're living in a fallen culture, surrounded by pagans. Most of them were former pagans. They've come to faith in Christ, and it's a church made up of Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and poor and rich, all kinds of people. And so here's what he says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So there's the context. Paul's somewhere else. He's writing to them. And listen to what he calls them. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. How does he start this thing out? He acknowledges and I think really reminds them don't forget your identity. You are sanctified. You've been set apart in Christ. You have his righteousness. You have a right relationship with God, and you are now saints. So what is he, what he's saying? Well, just like we talked about last week, these people had been chosen by God. They had been made alive by God, given new life by God. They had been adopted into the family of God, and they had been given new natures by God. Remember, don't lose sight of that. This is a body of people just like this one, Christ Chapel, made up of people just like Christ Chapel, of all walks of life and all kinds of backgrounds, having come to faith in Christ in different ways at different times, and they're all together in this thing called the church, the body of Christ. So they're just like us. They had been set apart. They were there for a reason. They were in Corinth for a reason. God had redeemed them and left them in Corinth for a reason. And they had a job to do. They also had the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had all that they needed, just like we have all that we need. And they were part of this thing called the family of God, both locally and globally. And sometimes, guys, we lose sight of that. We are, we are as Western Americans, we are individualistic in our mindset almost all the time. What's in it for me? How's it going to help me? How will that benefit me? Why should I do that? And yet, what Paul's trying to get them to understand is that everything you do as a believer is in this community context. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are no islands. We're here together. So listen to what he says. He goes on and he says, you have everything you need to live as saints. And that's exactly what they are. They are saints, not sinners. And I love the way he opens up the letter because he's very kind and he's very gracious and he's very encouraging. And then he hammers them. He's my kind of guy. He just, he sucks them in, gets them all warm and fuzzy. Man, I love this guy, Paul. Then he just like hits him in the head with a brick. Listen to what he's going to say. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I'm grateful that God redeemed you and saved you. He's admitting these people are saved, right? They've experienced the grace of God. And then he says, and that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So the grace of God, salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, based on the grace of God alone, has redeemed these people, and they are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Every aspect of their life has been radically changed. 
So that's pretty positive, right? He's, he's lifting them up. He's encouraging them to remember who you are and what's been done for you. And it should change everything about them, how they speak, and keep that in mind, and everything they think. Those two things are going to be really critical. He goes on and says, though that you are not lacking in any gift. Now, when he uses the word gift, he's particularly speaking of the spiritual gifts, because that's the context of the first Corinthians. He's talking a whole lot about the gifts, tongues and prophecy and wisdom and all the different gifts, okay? He says, you don't lack any one of the gifts. You have it all. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have everything you need. You have every gift. You are lacking in nothing. Why is that important? Because sometimes we feel like I don't have enough. I, I'm just not there. I'm not smart enough. I'm not deep enough. I don't know enough scripture. I'm just, you know, I, I'm not enough. And if you think that, guess what? That attitude permeates the fellowship. It permeates the church. We're not enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not righteous enough. And it becomes this kind of pity party of we're not effective. And, we're, and that's infectious and it can destroy the body of Christ. But he says, you're not lacking. Now, we looked at this passage last week. The author of Hebrews prayed, what? That you may be equipped by God with all you need for doing his will. And guess what? He's already done it. You are equipped. You can, because of Jesus Christ, have every good thing. You do have every good thing in order to do what God wants you to do. Now, this verse, like most of the verses in the New Testament written by Paul and James and this author, and who, who I still think is Paul, I think they're writing, no, I know they're writing to a church, not to an individual. When Paul writes to Timothy, yes, he's writing to an individual. But when he's writing to Ephesus, when he's writing to the Hebrews, when he's writing to the Corinthian believers, he's writing to a body. And he says, you, body, have every good thing. You, church, have everything you need. You lack nothing. You're fully equipped. So the Corinthians had everything. They were fully equipped with everything God intended so that they could do what pleases him. And what we're going to see really quickly is they weren't. They weren't. They were set apart, sanctified, filled with the Spirit, fully equipped, and they weren't living as they were to live, even though they lacked no good thing. They couldn't blame anybody but themselves. Okay? They couldn't blame God. They couldn't blame the lack of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't blame anybody but themselves for their problem. Again, Peter says, we have everything we need. Everything. And Peter is writing to a church. Church, you have God's divine power and he's giving you everything you need for living a godly life. Is that true of me individually? Certainly. Is it true of the body of Christ? Yes. We just don't think about it. We don't think about the body of Christ that often. You may think, well, Ken, that's your job. You're a pastor. That's why we pay you. You worry about the church. I'll worry about me. No, we all have to worry about the church, the state of the church, the health of the church. So in verse 10, he kind of starts to make his turn. He says, I appeal to you. I beg you. And what does he call them? Brothers. They're believers. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now, why is he bringing that up? Why is he bringing that up? 
There's divisions, right? Why is he bringing it up unless there's divisions? He goes, that there not be any divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Obviously, they're not. And he's going to prove it to us in just a second. And if there's anybody in the audience that day listening to this letter being read to them in a communal context by probably an elder, some leader in the church has gotten this letter from Paul. He gathers the congregation and he starts to read it. There's somebody going, why is he talking about that? Because you're divided. Because there's disunity. Because you're not of one mind and of same judgment. Let there be no divisions among you. And then he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. In other words, there's a snitch in the church. Somebody has reported back to Paul and ratted on him that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And I, and I love the fact there's quarreling among you, my brothers, my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's quarreling among you. And listen to what it is. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Peter, I follow Christ. You see what they're quarreling over? Oh, who's your leader? Oh, I follow Paul. Oh, he's an idiot. I follow Cephas. Cephas was a real apostle. Paul wasn't. He's kind of a come, you know, Johnny come lately. He just says he's an apostle. Peter was an apostle. And they're arguing over who they follow. And they're fighting over it. And it's a sign of spirituality. If I'm a Paul follower, I'm more spiritual than a Peter follower. Well, guess who wins in this debate? Well, I'm a Christ follower. Oh, Mr. Super Spiritual. Okay, yeah, well, we're all Christ followers, idiot. See, they're fighting. And what does he say? You're quarreling. You're fighting. And then he asks, is Christ divided? You really want to go here? You really want to do this, guys? You really want to argue over who you follow? See, you're dividing Christ. It, even though... What's the context? They have everything they need. They're fully gifted, fully equipped, full of the Holy Spirit. And yet, this is what the lives of the people in Corinth display. Don't forget, this is not a city. It's a church. This is what they hit. Disunity and division in the church. A lack of power in the church. Jealousy, envy. That's why they're fighting over who follows who. And we're going to find out in a second they're fighting over who has what gift. They have a need for recognition, pride, pettiness, immaturity, and worldliness in the church. Well, how did that happen? Because the church is made up of people. And those people are all sanctified, but they're not living sanctified. And so suddenly, guess what? The church is unsanctified. The church has been infected with unsanctification. And, and the whole letter of 1 Corinthians reveals all this stuff. You want to go back and read it, do it. it it's it's mind-boggling what's going on in this church. And it's really easy for me to read it and go, man, they were so screwed up. But if I look at it and I look at it and say, how much of that is like Christ Chapel? Because that list we just looked at is all going on in this church. If you don't go to this church, it's happening in your church. At some level, to some degree, disunity, jealousy, need for recognition, sexual immorality, we know it's happening. It's all going on, and it's all impacting the effectiveness of the church. So let's skip to chapter 3. He says, brothers, remember, he just keeps bringing it up. You're brothers, you're Christians, you're believers. I could not address you as spiritual people. Now think about that. If I stood up this morning and said, man, I'd love to talk to you like you're Christians, but you're really not. I'd love to talk to you like you were spiritually aware of things, but you're not. He says, 
you're really people of the flesh. If I said that, most of you would be angry, offended. Maybe you'd say, well, yeah, you're right, but you shouldn't have said it. But he's not afraid. He says, I wish I could talk to you like you're spiritual, but you're people of the flesh. You're like babies in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not, you're, you're not ready for it. What a, what a slap to the face of these people. I wish I could talk to you like you were mature, but you're not. You're like little babies. Even now you're not ready. So he does this comparison. Spiritual people, righteous people, holy people, set-apart people, sanctified people, and infants. Now, years ago in my life, God gave me a visual that I've never forgotten to help me understand how this should impact you and I. I was probably 11, 12 years old, living on Long Island, New York, and um, it was a winter. Snow would come, and every winter, if it snowed, I would go to the houses in our neighborhood, and I would ask if I could shovel their sidewalk, shovel their driveway, and get money. And so there was a couple of houses I knew would say yes, and I knew they paid well. So I would always make a beeline there. One of them was the house of a retired Methodist minister and, and his wife. They were probably in their mid to late 70s. I'm not even really sure. But I knew if I went there, I would always get a yes, get paid, and also get cocoa. It's a win-win. So I go, and certainly they said, yes, shovel our sidewalk. I do it. I, sh I shovel the sidewalk. I shovel the driveway. I go to the door. I knock. She comes down and she says, uh, come on in, it's cold outside. So I go in and she goes, you want your cocoa? Yes. She gets a cocoa and then I'm waiting for my money. She's gone to go get the money, which is really all I want. And I hear a baby crying. And I thought, that's weird. They're an elderly couple. He's retired. Why is there a baby crying? It must be a grandbaby. That's about all I thought. She comes back in the room, sees me looking up the stairs and she goes, have you met Joey? I'm like, no. And I know she's going to ask me, do you want to meet Joey? And I'm going to want to say no. <laughs> but I'm a PK, preacher's kid, and I know I have to say, sure, sure. So she takes me upstairs. I got my hot cocoa. I want my money. I don't have it yet. We go upstairs, walk into a room. It's painted blue. Open up the door. Bassinet. Looks like a baby's room. I look in the, the bassinet and I almost spewed my hot chocolate. I almost puked. And I literally ran from the room. And I ran home and I burst in the door of my kitchen at home and I went up to my mom and I said, what in the heck is going on up there? And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, the, the, the Methodist minister, the, the, the house, what is that upstairs? And she goes, oh, you met Joey. And I went, yeah, what is that? And then she began to explain to me that what I saw was not an infant. It was a 31-year-old man in the form of a baby. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. And guys, in no way am I diminishing that individual, his worth, his value. I'm just telling you the impact that image had on me when I looked in a bassinet, expecting to see a baby, an infant, I saw what looked like a man in the form of a baby crying like a baby. And I was repulsed. I was confused. I was, this is not right. This is not, this is wrong. This is not the way God intended it. There's something going on here. And my mom explained that he was born with some disorder and he never grew. 
So for 31 years, they had cared for their son. And that image has stuck with me over the years. So when I read this passage and Paul says, I wish I could talk to you like your spiritual people, but you're babies. You're adults in infant form. It is so wrong. It is so not the way God intended it. But you know what? We're okay with it. I don't know that much scripture. Who cares? I don't read the Bible. You'll tell me what it means, Ken. Cody will tell me what it means. Why do I need to know the Bible? Why do I need to study scripture? Why do I need to grow? Why do I need to pray? I'm perfectly fine. I'm doing perfectly fine. This is the image that sticks in my mind. That is not perfectly fine. That is not what God intended. We're not to eat milk. That's great when you're an infant, but when you're an adult, a 31-year-old man should not be in a crib the size of a baby drinking out of a bottle. That is wrong. It's not the way God intended. That's a result of the fall. Not his sin. It's just the result of this fallen world we live in. See, he goes, you're not even ready for it. And then he goes on, he says, there's jealousy and strife among you. You're not of the, are you not of the flesh? And he's going to use this phrase over and over again. You're of the flesh. You're of the flesh. You're living like the world. You're behaving in a human way. That's a slap, guys. That, we may think, well, I am a human. No, you're not. You're not a human anymore. You are redeemed. You are righteous. You are holy. You're set apart. You're a child of God. He says, when one says, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos or Paul and Apollos, you're being merely human. You're being like you used to be. You're living unsanctified when you have been sanctified. Now, remember, he's writing to the church. Not one individual's name has been mentioned here. Larry, you're living unsanctified. Beatrice, you're living... No, it's the church is living unsanctified, and it's having an impact on the whole community and their effectiveness. Why? Because they've chosen to live merely human. Remember that quote I shared with you last week from C.S. Lewis that too many of us have decided to live as ordinary people, and we're not. We're extraordinary people, mere humans, and yet we're saints. How did he open up the letter? You are sanctified and you're saints, but you're not living like it. You're living like mere humans when you should be living as a son of God, as a new creation. God has equipped you, church, with everything you need to live in a godly way in the midst of a godless context. And they have all the power they need. The power of the Holy Spirit lives within them. And guess what? It's also in the whole church. The power of the Holy Spirit manifests itself in the whole church. Listen to what he says. He says, don't you know... Aren't you aware? And this is not, you know, maybe you haven't heard this, guys. He's saying, you, you know this and you should be living this, that you are God's temple. Now, we're gonna, you're going to hear this like he's talking to you personally. Well, yeah, I, I am God's temple. The Holy Spirit lives within me. But he's talking to the church. Listen to what he says. You, church, are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you, church. If anyone destroys God's temple, the church, God will destroy him. That's why this verse doesn't mean God's going to take you out personally. This isn't about you at this moment. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, church, the spirit dwells in you as the church, the body of Christ. And if anyone destroys God's temple, who's the anyone? Satan? No, it's you, it's me, it's the Corinthians. You're destroying the church. 
You're destroying the church. And guess what? If you, as a believer, live an unsanctified life on and on and on and on, God will deal with you. I don't think this is saying God's going to wipe you out. God's going to take you home. God's going to snuff you out. God's going to set fire to you. I do think that God will bring you to a point of brokenness. If you continue to live an unsanctified life in the midst of the body of Christ, because this is what happens. Why? Because God's temple is holy. You, church, are God's temple. The Spirit lives in you, church, and the church is meant to be holy, the temple of God. How do I know that? Look what he, he, he he's going to drive home this idea that it's not about you. I want it all to be about me. Everything, even my walk with Christ, I want it to be about me. How am I doing? How's my spiritual walk? But it's not a solo sport. It's a community effort. It's your personal sanctification as it applies to the global body of Christ, most particularly where you attend church, where you hang your hat as a believer. So God has this corporate perspective on the church, the body. Yes, he cares about you. Yes, he loves you. He adopted you. He chose you. He gave you a new nature, but he put you in this thing called the church. What Paul refers to as this mystery. Why is it a mystery? Because the prophets of old never would have guessed that this would happen. The disciples never would have guessed that God was going to take Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free and men and women and poor and rich and stick them into this thing called the church. It's a mystery, it's, but it's God's will that we live together. And my sanctification and yours impacts the entire body. That's why it's so important for us to take this seriously. It's not you just going, well, you know, that's been a great series, Ken, and I'll apply some of it, but it, it, I'm not that serious about it. You need to be. Because when you choose to live unsanctified, and I'm not talking about egregious sin here, but when you choose to live normal ordinary, merely human lives, when you've been set apart by God, it will infect and impact the church. Because guess what? If you're doing it, somebody else is doing it. And the more of us that do it, that's why we see churches all over this country who are dying because they're full of unsanctified people. Doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means at some point in their life, they decided not to take their salvation seriously work out their salvation, live out their salvation. So it's for the good of the saints. Why? Because we're God's temple. Look what he says to the Ephesians. So then you, church, he's talking to the body once again. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens from God. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the church, the body, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see how important this is? If I just get this attitude, well, Jesus lives in me and I live in Jesus, and that's true, and we've studied it, and the Holy Spirit dwells within me, and that's great, and it's wonderful, and it's true, but I have to remember that I'm in this thing called the body of Christ. Is it easy? No. Is it simple? No. When you get around other people, everything gets complex. It gets messy. But we're here for a reason, and we're here in this temple for a reason. See, the, the Corinthians had totally missed this. 
And it had become an individualistic thing, their own personal holiness with no corporate consequences in their mind. But Paul is writing them to say, guys, there's some serious corporate consequences going on here because of your decision to live unsanctified. So let's just take a look. I just jotted down. Here's some of the things going on in the church in Corinth. Conflict, sexual immorality, compromise, complacency, competition, immaturity, boastfulness, legal disputes. They're actually taking each other to court over who knows what. Unhealthy marriages and idolatry. And I can look at that and go, man, what a, what a sad church. Every one of those is going on in this church at this moment right now. At some degree, at some level. And to say otherwise is to be foolish. And it's happening not, a, not in the lives of unbelievers attending this church, but in the lives of believers, sanctified people living in this church and attending this church. Why? Because they've chosen to live unsanctified lives. And the real danger is what happens when you tolerate it, turn a blind eye to it, ignore it, act like it doesn't exist when it does. That's why the guys that you sit around at these tables, you need to understand that each of you is flawed. Each of you has problems. Each of you has issues. Each of you, at least at some part in some day along the way this week, has lived unsanctified. And just be honest about it. Don't blow smoke. Don't, don't fake it. Don't don't lie. Just be honest that this is who we are. And if we don't address it and deal with it, if I don't address the unsanctification in your life and you don't address it in my life, we continue down this path of complacency and compromise leading to what? Destruction of the body of Christ eventually. And then he drives home in chapter 12, this idea of the body and how important it is for us to understand our uniqueness as a body, that we belong together. We fit together. He uses the analogy of the physical body. The body doesn't consist of one member, but many. I got hands, I got feet, I got eyes, I got kidneys, I got spleens, I, I got, or spleen. I think I have one. I'm not sure what it does. But isn't that like the body of Christ? I don't know what some of you do. I don't know what your gift is. I don't know, I don't know why God put you in the church. I do know he put you here for a reason and you have a job to do. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would make, not make it any less a part of the body. And he's going to go through this whole scenario of if the eye was not there, if the head was not there, if everybody's fighting over who's who, and I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and they're all bickering, and who's got more spirituality, and they're arguing over gifts, and well, I don't have gift of tongue, so I must not be as spiritual, I must not be necessary to the body. See, it's causing division, it's causing doubt, it's causing people to not be effective, and it's damaging. The body does not consist of one member but of many. But isn't it interesting how you can come to church on Sunday and it all be about you, my parking space, my convenience, somebody's in my row, they didn't play the songs I like, the service was too full, I had to go to another service, dadgummit. You know, and we get angry and we get upset and I didn't feel ministered to and I didn't enjoy it. It took me too long to get out of the garage. It's all about you and you don't think about the body. How dangerous that is. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? There would be no body. What if God saved you and just said, you're saved. You're going to heaven someday. Go on your merry way. Go have fun. 
But no, what did he do? He stuck you in this thing called the body. And, and we're expected to come and take part. You know, I'm not a real big fan of streaming church services. I know we do it. And a lot of people watch it. There's people in retirement communities. There's people who are sick. There are people who can't come. But there's also people who are sitting in their lounge chair, in their underwear, watching Cody preach on Sunday when they ought to get their butt up and come to church. And you might go, well, that's harsh. You're part of the body of Christ. Well, the body of Christ is global, Ken. Well, they're certainly not in your living room while you're watching TV on your, in your lounge chair in your underwear. See, there's this idea that I come together and I'm a member of this thing called the body and I don't worship individually on my own and I most certainly don't grow alone. I come here and I minister and I share and I'm shared too and I am convicted and I'm, it's all this part of the interaction of the body. There are many parts yet one body. And he's going to drive it home over and over again. Guys, you're all together in this. You're all one. You're not individual. He says, you're, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. Yes, you are individual. Yes, you are specific. Yes, God is in you, loves you, cares about you individually, but he's put you in the body. And then he goes on and talks about apostles and prophets and teachers and all this stuff is great, and we have all these leaders and all these gifted people, and you have gifts you're to bring. We're all put into this thing, and we are to care about one another's sanctification. I should care about yours, and you should care about me, because we're all members of the same thing, the body of Christ. And my sanctification and yours adds to the health of this body. You may not think so. You may not realize it, but it does. And you have a spiritual gift. And when you use it according to God's will and the Spirit's power, the church is benefited by that. When you don't, the church loses. When you're fighting over what gift you have, well, your gift is more important than mine. You get up and teach, and I don't. I work in the nursery. What if nobody worked in the nursery? It'd be chaos. What if there, nobody wanted to do parking posse? It would literally be chaos. People will be fighting in the parking lot over parking spaces. Your holiness contributes to the church's vitality and your failure to grow stunts its growth. You have to get that through your head. When you don't grow, this church doesn't grow. When you fail to follow Christ in your sanctification, it impacts and infects the church. So look at this. He's very blunt. He says, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and a kind of that is not tolerated even among the pagans. So now he gets straight to the point. Guys, you're fighting over this and you're fighting over that, but here's a real problem you got. There's sexual immorality. And there's a guy sleeping with his stepmother and the father, the stepmother, and the son all go to the same church. Now that ought to at least shock you to some degree. Well, we'd never let that happen here. Well, they're letting it happen. He says, a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant, you're boastful, you're proud of it, you're tolerant. Well, it's okay. They all seem to be getting along. Don't we want them to come to church? And how many times have we done that? How many times have we seen sin in somebody's life and go, well, who am I to judge? He says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He says, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Get him out. Well, that's really harsh, right? But what's the danger? You've allowed this to remain in your church. It's infected your church. It's impacting your church. Now you need to get him out because it's going to have a negative consequence. He's destroying the church from within. 
And he goes on and says, when you get together, and the next time you get together in the name of the Lord Jesus, in my, with my spirit present, and in the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan. Now, again, we read that and we go, God, that's harsh. I think it ought to tell you how serious Paul is about the sin in their midst, right? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, his body, so that his spirit may be saved. I think this guy's a believer who's living as an unbeliever in an unsanctified way, who has rejected all counsel, stiff-armed anybody in his life who might have said something to him, and Paul's saying, it's time to get him out of there. It's time to deal with him. Deliver him over. Get him out. And he says, your boasting is not good. You're boasting about what? That we're tolerant. We're, we're accommodating. We're not judgmental. And then he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Get that lump out. Get the, the leaven out of there. Cleanse it out, no matter how hard it is, so that you may be a new lump. Why? Because you're truly unleavened. You should be sanctified, set apart, righteous. So cleanse it out. This passage has individual and communal applications. I have sin in my life I need to cleanse out, but there's sin in this church I need to care about. There's sin in your life I need to care about. I need to be willing to step into it and not live isolated and individualistic. See, I need to care about you. I need to think about you and, and realize that my sin and my sanctification do have an impact on this church, and so does yours. So when I see sin in a guy's life, when I see a man who is committing sin, who is saying things he shouldn't say, doing things he shouldn't do, I have an obligation to step into his life, not just for his benefit, but for the body's benefit, because it's going to destroy the church from within. So Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite writers, says this. Now, according to the apostle Paul, speaking of this passage, if the leaven of evil is permitted in a church, it will work its way through the whole of it. The leaven of evil living, too, is equally obnoxious in the church. Tolerated in one, it will soon be excused in another. And a lower tone of thought with regard to sin will rule the church. The toleration of sin in the church soon leads to the excusing of it and that to the free indulgence of it and to the bringing in of other sins yet fouler. You see, it just, it just keeps growing. And then he adds this. There must be no lower standard for us than the perfection of Christ. No attainment must ever satisfy us until we are conformed to his image, who is the firstborn among many brethren. You will tell me I'm holding up a high standard. I am. But then we have a great helper, the Holy Spirit. See, what's interesting to me is that I need to care about my life, and I need to have a high standard, Christ, for my life. But you know what? I need to have that high standard for you. And that gets really awkward, right? If I get into your grill and go, man, you're not living like Christ, there's one of two things that are going to happen. I'm going to get punched, I'm going to get rejected, or maybe I'm going to be listened to and that individual changes. Or they may point back at me, well, you need to change this in your life, and I need to be willing to hear that. No lower standard. So I'm going to end with this passage, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. I'm going to guess, and I'm going to probably guarantee that every one of you, when you've read this passage before and you're familiar with it, you've read it thinking about the world, okay? Paul is writing Timothy, his young protege in the faith, young minister in the faith, and he's writing to them and he's saying, Timothy, you need to know this, that in the last days, there will be very, very difficult times. They were living in the last days just like we are. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. Sounds a lot like Corinth. 
They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. Now stop right there. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the world? And every time I read this passage, I think, man, that's the world. That's the world we're, we're living in. There's people all around me, Democrats, and you know, they're all out there and they're lack self-control and some Republicans and cruel and they hate and they slander. The world is a horrible, evil place. He's telling him and he's warning him about the church. The context is the church. We just read about it. First Corinthians, Laodicea. Because what does he say? They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Sanctification. Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, the word of God. Stay away from people like that. See, there are churches in this community that you need to stay away from. Even though they claim to be of Christ and they may have Christians in it, but they are living like this. They are living unsanctified and they have become infected and are no longer effective for the gospel. So we already read this passage. I'm not going to go back through it. But Laodicea, you think you're wealthy, you think you're rich, you think you need nothing. But he says, hey, go back to the well. Go back to what you already have. You need me. I've given you the power. I've given you the hope. I've given you the body. I've given you everything you need. Live in it. Live sanctified lives. Because when we don't, it infects the church and impacts the body's effectiveness in the world. So here's your three questions. First of all, discuss what unsanctification looks like in your life. Um, be honest. And again, it's not egregious sin. It's just those times when I don't want to live quite like God's wanted me to live. The Corinthians had everything they needed, yet they struggled with division, disunity, jealousy, contention, and more. All of these things were the result of unsanctification in their individual lives, so in what ways could your unsanctification impact your church? What could that lead to? Think outside of yourself. Then finally, the Corinthians were to cleanse out the old leaven. What does this look like on an individual basis and how would it impact the overall body of Christ? One of the groups on Tuesday got hung up on, who, who do we need to kick out of the church? And I'm like, okay, you can go there, but... The point is, how do you get rid of the sin in your own life? How do you get rid of the sin in the body of Christ? And what's the overall impact on this local body of Christ? Father, I pray that you would guide the conversation as we discuss these topics, that we would take seriously your admonition that we are part of the family of God. We are the temple of a holy God. And we are that temple together, not individually. That, Father, we have... a, a an obligation to care about the guys sitting next to us and across from us. We need to know where they are spiritually and are they growing and are they living sanctified lives? And if not, why not? And how can we help? And I need that same thing in my life. Father, give us a global perspective, a community outlook when it comes to this thing called our own sanctification. Lord, I love you and I thank you for these men and I pray that you would bless their discussion time. Amen.